It's uh, well, welcome, welcome to Dave and to Kathy. Thank who's you. sat sat over there. Uh, I was going to I was going to describe Dave as an old friend, but uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that can that can be. Uh, Taking him more ways, more ways than one. I've known, I've known Dave and Kathy for I think it's about thirty-five years, something like. That. It must be at least uh, they, they were at our wedding, so I can sort of vaguely, vaguely uh, put the time scale on it uh, before before that. Uh, I realised I was meant to clap at the beginning to help the people reconcile the sounds. So excuse me a moment. <laughs> we're we're we're, video, we're videoing it, and we uh, I was told to make sure nobody notices, but. I don't think you didn't notice, did you? <laughs> uh, just help them synchronise sound, sound, sound and vision. But, but thank, you for, thank you so many of you for, for sending questions in. We've tried to capture the spirit of a lot of the questions we've had in, in, the, in the discussion I'm, I'm going to have with, with Dave. Uh, so hopefully something like your question or nearly like your question has been asked, but we haven't got time to answer all of them, so we've, we, we've, select, we've selected a few uh, uh, but just to begin with, Dave, you're, uh, currently your job description is Chief Executive of the Elders. Uh, numbers of people have said to me, well, what, what are who are the Elders? So, so who and what are the Elders and, and what do you do? Right, well, thank you. And, and first, just to say, it's very nice to be here on, on such a nice day. And it's also not often that when you're speaking, you get a thank you card before you've spoken. So thank you. <laughs> thank you, Miles. Thank you, Miles. And I hope you feel the same afterwards. Uh, <laughs> um, Yet yeah, the elders are um, a group of uh, former global statespeople who work together on peace and human rights. The idea actually originated in a conversation between Peter Gabriel, the musician um, of Genesis fame if you're my generation and WOMAD fame if you're a lot younger, um, and uh, Richard Branson, they were friends, and they were sort of bemoaning the state of the world and thought that the world could do with some global elders in the same way as an African village might have its elders. So these are not the people running the world, but people who might be able to speak to the people running the world and encourage them to run it a bit better. Um, so they persuaded Nelson Mandela to pull the group together. Um, he was apparently quite sceptical at first, but became convinced and then sort of pulled the, the original group together of a dozen elders. Uh, there's been some changes in the composition uh, since then. Um, and essentially what we do is geopolitical advocacy. And my role in that is I run the secretariat that supports the work that the elders do. Uh, so we're, we're based in London, about 20 of us. Um, but the elders are all around the world. They're, they're mainly former presidents of various countries, Chile, Mexico, Colombia, Liberia, uh, Ireland, Norway, Prime Minister, um, and then Ban Ki-moon, the former UN Secretary General, and, and various, some others you are less likely to have heard of. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. And before that, you were Chief Exec of Worldwide, World Wildlife Fund UK. Uh, Worldwide Fund for Nature. Nature, I missed the yeah, it yeah. changed its name about 40 years ago, but don't let it worry you. <laughs> <sighs> he hasn't changed a bit. <laughs> uh, earlier in, well, we're, we're obviously having this series on, for those of you who are visitors, I probably should explain, we've been having a series on our current climate crisis, looking at, looking at various aspects of that. And 
very early in the series, we saw a video which many of us remember about the northern white rhino that is, that is facing extinction. And it was incredibly sad, incredibly sad, sad video. But, but why does Christian th- such things bother us or, or matter to us? Um, when I was chief executive for WWF uh, UK for almost a decade, um, one of the things we did was to try to capture what was WWF about in a few words. And we managed to get it down to four words, which I was really pleased with. Uh, and I'm also really pleased that even three and a half years after I left, they're still using them. Um, and it was this, people and nature thrive. And it seems to me that is a vision that WWF, as a purely secular organization, can, uh, can find appealing and, and so on. But it's also something that rings true, I believe, for Christians and the vision that you see in the Bible and that God has of people and nature thriving. Um, and nature thriving uh, doesn't include uh, us making lots of uh, species extinct. And um, one of the reasons I asked for, suggested rather, the, uh, some of the readings um, about Noah was because I think we often read the story of Noah with other things in mind, but actually it relates to this. You know, the story is that the world had got into such a terrible uh, situation with the way humans were behaving that God decides to send a coronavirus, I mean a flood, uh, to uh, almost, almost start again. But if you read the story, there are lots of places where it's very clear God is sure bothered and very bothered about the humans, but he is also bothered about the biodiversity, as we would now call it, the, the range of species uh, which he had created. And uh, that's reflected not only in the fact that the instructions to Noah are to get lots of uh, these creatures in the bit we read, you know, seven of each kind, which is, I suppose, probably enough for some sort of genetic um, uh, diversity. Um, But also, did you notice that in the second bit of the reading, God talks about the covenant that he makes and the sign of the rainbow, covenants with all living creatures, I mean, this is not just a covenant, not just a covenant, though it is between God and humans. It's between God and creation. Uh, So it seems to me it's deeply rooted there in the Bible. God is bothered about having the diversity of life on earth and goes to some considerable lengths in that story to maintain it. Uh, And uh, so for us humans to act in ways which eliminate some of those species uh, seems to me to be uh, uh, unbiblical. Okay, okay. I guess widening widening that out, the whole issue of creation care itself and uh, global warming and climate change and all that, something that Christians should have high on their agenda at the minute. Uh, Absolutely. Um, And... (coughs) For, for, I suppose, a couple of reasons, I would say. Um, one is that the situation has changed. I mean, why is there nothing in the... Why doesn't Jesus go on about climate change? Well, you know, Jesus doesn't go on about parking etiquette, you know. Well, because there weren't any cars. Uh, <laughs> but there might be some principles about parking etiquette you could derive from the Bible, but you won't find anything about 
parking etiquette, um, or, or a whole load of other contemporary issues. So, you know, the climate wasn't changing in the way it is now at that time, so understandably he wasn't addressing it. And that's partly because human consumption, uh, which is the primary driver of all this, um, uh, is, is on a, a massive scale, partly because of the numbers of humans and partly because of the, uh, the, the, the amount of consumption and the way we do it. Uh, and so part of the reason I, I, I think we have to engage with this is because the situation demands it. But there is another reason, and it's this, that this is something which Christians shouldn't be concerned about and mind about and because of the, what the Bible teaches, which lots of people are concerned and bothered about, and young people uh, are concerned and bothered about. What a great way to have a conversation and engage with, uh, with people on something we both are concerned about. Great. Thank you. Numbers of the questions we've had have been uh, practical ones. Uh, many of us thinking about how we live, how we live our life, and what, what changes, if any, we need to make, and how, how we make them. So, uh, flying. Uh, I guess in your job, you have uh, you, you, you fly. Well, I know you fly a lot. Uh, how do how do you reconcile that with with the emissions caused and the environmental impact of of, of flying? So I'm about to give you. Uh, some sort of justification for my flying. But before I do, I want to quote roughly, I won't get it exactly right, word for word, the words of uh, a theologian called Reinhold Niebuhr, an American theologian from the last century. And he wrote something like this. He said, the intelligence of privileged groups is usually applied to the invention of specious proofs that the privileges they enjoy are for the common good. <laughs> so I, I will give you a justification for why I fly so much, but I do so knowing that you know, human brains are very good at justifying our own behavior and finding reasons why it's justified. So you have that caveat. Um, the, the work of the elders is, is very international and it is basically geopolitical advocacy. It's trying to persuade other people to change. And you can do that by writing to them or emailing them, even phoning them. But meeting them face to face is something much more influential. So if you want to influence the president of Indonesia or the foreign minister of Iran or whatever, you know, yeah, you can write them a letter, and we do. And sometimes it's possible to arrange phone calls, and we do. But it's very different if you can meet them face to face. And if you want to highlight a terrible situation or a concerning situation or whatever, say a refugee camp or something, of course you can do it. But the fact is that the media will take enormously more notice if you've physically been there yourself and can talk about it from having actually been there. A bit in the way we have, you know, I love it, on, my wife and I sometimes laugh at this, you know, you have a journalist in some terrible situation with the weather or something, you know, and the government have advised that nobody should be here. Um, and you think, well, what, why are you there? <laughs> you know, um, uh, it's very dangerous. Um, so the, the, that, that is the fact. And it's also that, you know, 
these elders, they're mainly in their 70s, they're volunteers, and they're quite high-profile people. So it also means sometimes going there, staff going there first, to check out how is this going to work? I mean, where are the toilets? How many steps up is it? You know, how long will it take to get from here to here? If all these people mob them, what will we do? Et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's my sort of self-justification. Okay. Thank you. Uh, what, what, what are the other, some of the other practical tensions that, that you, as somebody who's in this field and very aware of it, that you, that you struggle with? A sort of, I'll come to some of the down-to-earth practical ones. One of the sort of high-level ones is how to get the balance right between sort of being miserable and not doing things and, and being joyful and, you know, engaging and celebrating sort of life. Um, so, so that's, that's sort okay. of one of the things and trying not to be forever whinging and moaning at people for doing things you don't think that they should or feeling guilty yourself um, at a practical level there's all kinds of things really I mean cheese is one of them uh, I mean <laughs> cheese is I wasn't I, expecting that <laughs> you know I really like cheese I, I could I'm not a vegetarian I could probably become a vegetarian I could probably, I'm pretty sure I could become a pescatarian I would really struggle with being a vegan because of cheese and I've tried the non I mean it's just not you know. um, yeah so I struggle with that um, I struggle with the fact that yeah we we do have holidays where we fly um, to, to go to places you can't go really in practical yeah. terms without flying um, sometimes um, yeah so I I Sort of, sort of nitty-gritty yeah. that I guess we all, we all struggle with. Yeah. Are, there, are there any changes that, that you, and, you and Kathy, you and the family have made? Uh, yeah. yeah, quite a lot. Um, so if we think about our home, uh, well, let's start with the basic, you know, put more insulation in the loft, a lot more, and then we were sort of redoing bits of the house after, you know, 20 years and four kids it needed a bit of stuff. Um, so we were able to put in insulation between, you know, when we were like redoing a floor or a ceiling, you put insulation between the floor and the ceiling. We made sure everywhere had got uh, cavity wall insulation. We live in a semi, which is partly sink. The original bit is single brick, uh, single. Um, there's no cavity, sorry, double brick, but no cavity. And the other bit is uh, 1970s cavity, but only part of it had been cavity walled so we did that uh, where it was um, solid wall we put internal insulation which I thoroughly recommend it makes it much more comfortable um, uh, to live and if you're redecorating the room anyway it doesn't uh, sort of cost that much then we've got um, solar PV generating on the roof uh, solar thermal heating our water and more recently we've switched to an air source heat pump rather than a gas boiler um, sort of uh, fixed up on the side of the house. Um, yeah, so, you know, we've tried in terms of the house, then in terms of travel, um, partly to keep feeling able to justify the flying, uh, we've switched, we have, we have two cars, so that might be very bad, but um, one is a, a plug-in hybrid and the other is all electric, uh, and we... We, we charge them mainly at home on overnight electricity, which comes from a company which does 100% renewable, electric, renewable electricity and so on. Um, 
so we've done uh, all that. And then food is the other one. I mean, I, I've tried to reduce a lot my meat consumption. Um, uh, so, for example, um, partly with my job, I end up eating out quite a lot. I've tried to train myself. When I get a menu in a restaurant, first look at the stuff that's vegetarian and think, is there any of this I would like and enjoy? And then look at the meat options. Uh, that doesn't mean I will always choose the vegetarian. I certainly don't. But, you know, keep thinking, why, why couldn't I enjoy a vegetarian meal? And, try and, and I try not to have, you know, meat at every meal and so on. Great. Uh, for, those, for those here, what do you think? If there's one change, simple lifestyle change, that we could make that would have the greatest impact, any suggestion on... I know it will depend on individual people, but... Correct. <laughs> um, I think probably um, go on the I think they're still on the go on the WWF website and do the what's your footprint exercise which will ask you lots of questions and then tell you how many planet earths we'd need if everybody lived like you it's sort of salutary because um, <laughs> uh, as you may have noticed we just have the one planet earth uh, God thought one was enough um, yeah, so I, I think it's quite... I, I don't really want to say, well, you know, it, it's electric cars or it's n not eating so much meat. Or there's, there's no one answer. And, and also different people should, I think, take different steps. I don't, I don't think there's a one, okay. one thing fits all. In, ter in terms of electric cars, I know, I know a number of people <laughs> have asked the question, yeah. uh, the actual resources involved in making yep. the car yep. and yep. All, that, all that stuff, yep. does that negate uh, any benefit from using less carbon, carbon fuel? Yeah, um, well, it's it sort of... I, I don't think it does negate it. It certainly is an issue. And, of course, it's difficult to know. Well, how much carbon do you have to sort of save from emissions of petrol or diesel uh, and, of course, uh, particulates um, compared to um, the processing of uh, rare earth metals or uh, whatever. Uh, and you also have to look at what happens at the end of the life of the car. And, you know, there is a, a trade-off. So, you know, just this is not a car example, but, you know, we put in an air source heat pump, but, you know, our <coughs> gas boiler was more than 20 years old. If it had been two years old, you'd think, hmm, is this, you know, the trade-off might be different. Um, so there are, a lot, there are lots of issues with, uh, with electric cars, but, uh, you know, if we decarbonize the electricity system, and I have another role which is involved in that, um, uh, that helps. And if we switch, as the, you know, the legislation will now push us to, to electric and, well, hybrid and then all electric cars or hydrogen cars, um, I think that it's likely that the mechanisms for recycling and so on will also grow, partly as rare earth metals and other components of electric cars, the prices increase, you know, copper or whatever, uh, uh, as this spreads around the world. So, I, I, and I also think there's something to be said for, for us as Christians doing some things, not to say, look how good I am, but to say to people that, you can do this, you know, and to encourage other people to do it without making a big sort of song and dance about it. Okay, no, that's helpful. Uh, again, looking at the looking at the bigger context, a couple, couple three people asked in terms of it's all right for individuals changing. What about governments, multinational companies? Carrot stick. What what works best? So you mentioned the legislation to ban 
uh, fossil fuel cars, uh, which I guess is a kind of stick to, to beat uh, <coughs> tax breaks, incentives, whatever. Yeah. In terms of that whole political environment, what should we be encouraging? Um, uh, I think the short answer is all of the above. Because <laughs> uh, I think you know, this shift from a fossil fuel-based economy to a non-fossil fuel-based economy is, is very big and very difficult. Um, there would be a mechanism for enabling the world to do that, which would be much simpler than a lot of what we're doing, which is to get an agreed carbon price. Uh, all you have to do is get all the countries in the world to agree on a carbon price and agree when we collect the tax, which it would effectively be, where does the money go and who controls it. Sadly, getting all the countries of the world to agree on a carbon tax, how much it would be, and most particularly, who gets the money, and if an aircraft flies, you know, is difficult. But that would enable market mechanisms to operate in a very effective way, and it would be like VAT, only it would be a CAT, a carbon-added tax. Um, but as you may have noticed, value-added taxes around the world, lots of countries have them, but it's only domestic. And imagine trying to agree how much of your carbon tax has to go to someone else and so on. Uh, so we need to do lots of other things. Um, firstly, I think on the company's side, there's some encouraging things internationally, but including very much in this country, with a big emphasis, much more emphasis now, what is the purpose of your company? What is it here for? Of course, all companies have to make money, they're commercially successful, but what's the point of it? And uh, you may remember uh, Adair Turner some years ago talked about a lot of activities in the city of London being, quote, socially useless. Uh, and I think, you know, that sort of challenge, what is the social value of what your company or business is doing, is a good one. And secondly on that, um, the increasing emphasis on the role or the accountability of companies to take account of the interests of various stakeholders, uh, Section 172 of the Companies Act, for those that are into this, uh, you know, that's, that's an important shift in the thinking, and it's moving us right away from the sort of Milton Friedman, Chicago School stuff, again, sorry to get into the sort of economic, financial economic stuff. Um, uh, now, incentives are important. I mean, part of the reason we did some of what we've done on our house is because there were incentives, because it's not expensive at that time to put solar panels on your roof. But part of kick-starting that whole thing was to get, you know, to subsidise it, offer incentives, and then people like us would do it, and that helps the industry get going. And I personally think the government then mishandled the way those went down. It wasn't steady and predictable. It was erratic and uh, politically driven. But the principle of using subsidies short-term to kick-start, get action going quicker than it would otherwise is a good one. Um, I do think we need regulation. If you think about lead in petrol or CFCs in fridges, you know, when the government announces we're going to do this, often the industry reacts negatively and doesn't like it and complains and says it'll be very expensive and very difficult and we're not sure we can do it in time and so on. And there's a big argument about it. Once the argument's happened and the, re the regulation is clear, then all that entrepreneurial energy and all that PR, it all goes into solving the problem. And guess what? We took lead out of petrol and, you know, were there cars breaking down all over the motorways? No, there weren't because we, we worked out how to, to deal with it. And saying, so, you know, our fridges are all, you know, managing without CFCs. Um, but there is another thing which we can all help contribute to and that is social norms. Um, if I think of the, the stuff that arrives in the post now, there's been an enormous reduction in the proportion of that that is wrapped in plastic. There is no regulation on that. There's no incentive. 
It's just the feeling that has got around that it's not acceptable to be sending stuff in plastic. So, you know, it, I think we just had something from yesterday from Q. You know, it's now in a paper envelope, or it's in a made from starch, or it's biodegradable, whatever it is. So we can all contribute to that, you know, by in a shop asking a question about, you know, I'm interested you've still got... Uh, plastic here. I mean, not, not that plastic's always bad. We need plastics in some places, and we also need to work out how to make them not out of oil. Um, potentially, by the way, using CO2 that we might get out of the atmosphere and use to make plastics, which would be a, a, an interesting thing. So, yeah, I think we need all of these things, um, and, and we need it to be done thoughtfully, and also with a focus on the consequences for people who will be adversely affected by it, what's called in the jargon the just transition, uh, making it a just transition as opposed to an unjust or unjust transition. And as Christians very bothered about justice, that should be something, again, that unites us with a lot of people uh, who are concerned about, you know, what will this mean for coal miners or, um, uh, you know, people working in the plastics industry. Okay, great, brilliant. Just a couple of questions. I could carry on sitting and talking for hours, I think, but uh, just a couple of, couple of questions uh, just to end. One is, as you travel around the world, as you talk to leaders globally, what, what signs of hope? Sometimes you can see the scenarios on, uh, about what might happen, and I was reading a couple this week, and you, it can be quite terrifying. Mm. Uh, what signs of hope uh, do you see as you, as you travel around? Well, firstly, I think there is a huge... Uh, move, the sort of social movements, it's more, much more predominant in sort of Western Europe and North America uh, about climate um, and that's helpful. I don't always agree with everything but the emergence of things like Extinction Rebellion and so on I think has, with the help of the media of course, uh, uh, put this uh, up the agenda and that also can be helpful in persuading political and business leaders that certain actions, that they've got to do this. Um, and it's also sort of affected the way we all think. You know, you can talk to people about their carbon footprint. And, you know, 15 years ago, if I asked you what you're saying about carbon footprint, I mean, you, what are you talking about? You know, have you got new boots or something? Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, that, that our whole consciousness about this has changed, and I think that opens up political and uh, commercial space to make decisions that would not have been possible before. I am concerned about the, the sort of depression and negativity and the danger that, particularly for younger people, this sort of, you know, is, how is this affecting their mental health uh, if, if all the thing is about doom and gloom and so on? Because um, I do think human ingenuity is enormous and, uh, you know, we, we are capable of finding ways of solving this. Um, I think, secondly, there are now, as, uh, you know, the, the, the Paris Agreement that was reached in 2015 um, was very helpful. I think it's uh, very disappointing that uh, Donald Trump announced that the U.S. would leave. It, it leaves, of course, uh, uh, just around the time of the American election, so we'll have to see what happens. But... Um, 
What's interesting is that in the states, you will still find individual states like California and, and others saying, well, the, the, there may not be a federal approach on this, but we're, we're doing it anyway. Lots of very big uh, American businesses saying, we're, we're going to do things. American people say, we're doing things. So we, we, even where governments have stepped back, you know, uh, people have, have, have stepped into that. And I'm also encouraged by Christians and churches who I think, uh, you know, have have moved enormously on this and engaged and recognized that there is lots of material in the Bible which relates to this, though just as like my point about parking etiquette, you know, it doesn't talk about climate change, but you, you can see the connections. But I think, for, I mean, for me, on, on the question of hope, there's also, depending on your sort of eschatological views, you know, your views about how what happens at the end of time, um, uh, you know, I, I see in uh, what Jesus said and in the book of Revelation, talk about a new creation, including a new earth. Well, it, this, I don't know where this church's theology on this is, but anyway, you know, if we all just go to heaven to play harps when we die, what's the point of a new earth? And it seems to me the picture which we sang about, you know, I believe in the, in the resurrection and that, that we will rise again. And when Jesus rose again, you know, he had a physical body. It was different from how it had been before. It seemed to be able to pass through walls, but it was still recognizably him to some degree with marks. So is there some picture there about, you know, the new creation is about using what, we, what there is and God recreating it, renewing it in some sort of different way. And therefore, what we do here matters. Not that it, it's a pure continuity, but there's some connection with the, the ultimate future that God has in store for us with how we handle the, the, the planet he's made for us to inhabit now. Great. And if you'd like to think through that a bit more, uh, Charlie's going to be looking at some of those issues next week. So we'll be... It's a nice, nice, nice oh, trailer. Well, in for, I didn't know that. Nice, nice, nice trailer in for, for next week. So as we as we think of this whole issue, as we think of climate care, as we think of the crisis, last question: uh, What do you think God feels about all of this? I um I, I had a, a meeting with a government minister, which uh, John Hayes, when he was energy minister, it was the most unusual meeting with the government minister I've ever had. And um, I suppose he'd been briefed about me, and he knew I had a couple of theology degrees as well as running WWF. And we were discussing climate, and suddenly he said, in, towards the end of the meeting, um, do you believe in God? <laughs> <laughs> and I could see the civil servants who were in the meeting taking notes sort of stopped. <laughs> you know, do we write that down? I mean, is that part of the official record of the meeting? Um, so I said, yes, I do. Oh, he said, and said something else. And then I said, you know, I wonder what God thinks about all this um, and I said uh, I, I sometimes wonder I said I mean maybe God thinks you know I made the world and I made sure there was some fossil fuels near the surface really easy to get at so that they could get the industrial revolution going because that you know loads of benefits from the industrial revolution but I put most of the rest of the stuff where it's really difficult really dangerous and really expensive to get hold of it and I, I made sure they could develop their sort of scientific knowledge that, you know, there's a sun. It's shining pretty brightly. You'd think they'd get the hint. There's some energy there. The moon <laughs> keeps going when the tides keep flowing and the waves and the wind. You know, did they not get the hint? There's, there's lots of energy for you. Why go carry on with all this old-fashioned stuff? 
So I sort of thought God might feel a bit sort of surprised and puzzled that we hadn't quite spotted, you know, what he didn't <laughs> carefully made sure was available. John, John, John Hayes' response to that was, hmm, he said, that's very interesting. He said, I think that's the first theological reflection on climate change I've had here. <laughs> and I've never thought of it like that. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, thank you ever so much, Dave. Uh, appreciate you coming and giving your time and, and, and your, your wisdom uh, on, on this subject. If you've got a question you haven't had chance to get answered, or maybe something Dave said has uh, set up new questions, or you violently disagree, uh, we've got tea and coffee afterwards. Do do quiz the guy. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome to come and. Uh, uh, if if government ministers don't phase him, then I'm sure our questions <laughs> won't. But, but but thank you ever so much, ever so much, Dave. Can we pray for you as we as we finish? Please. Uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for Dave. Thank you for his experience, for his wisdom. Thank you for his uh, commitment to you uh, and to live out his faith, in a sense, in a very visible way. Uh, Lord, pray for him as he continues in that role with the elders. Uh, Lord, pray that he might be a source of wisdom for them. Uh, Lord, pray that you would use him uh, within that whole mission of the elders, Lord, that they would uh, be able to speak into uh, so much of what's going on in the world and offer, and offer wise words, wise counsel, that they would be able to bring people together. Uh, Lord, that in, in some way they would be part of your work to make your kingdom come here, here on earth uh, as, as in heaven. Uh, Lord, pray for David. Lord, pray that you bless him, bless Kathy in their life together. Uh, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.